If you've got a Bible, uh, open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to finish up chapter 16 today, starting in verse 19, and, and wrap up that chapter. If you need a good Bible, uh, get one at Guest Connections. Take that home with you. Let that be our gift to you and a resource for you to be able to enjoy the Word during the week. Along this journey toward Jerusalem, Jesus is doing ministry and continually teaching and training His disciples. He's helping them know how to live for Him and worship Him on earth in the life that they've been given. And in order to do that, He's drawing their eyes toward eternity. In the same way, when you drive a car, in order to effectively drive that car, you don't look right over the hood. You look off in the distance in order to drive that with safety and with effectiveness. Jesus is doing that here with His disciples through His Word, continually helping, helping our eyes to be lifted up past us, past right in front of us and on to him and how he's called us to live in light of the life that we have in him. We read this passage last week, but I want to read it again, this time in the New Living Translation. Paul's writing to Christians here in his letter to the Colossian church, people who had placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin and are now seeking to follow him in faith and obedience. And Paul writes this, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Set your sights on the realities of heaven. Think about the things of heaven. And then verse 4 points us to the second coming of Christ when he returns in his glory revealed to the world and we share in all his glory. So here in Luke we are tracking along with Jesus and his first advent, his first coming. And he's preparing his disciples then, he's preparing his disciples now how to live everyday life setting our sights on the realities of heaven. How do we live in a way that prepares us for eternal life then? And in this passage we'll look at today, Jesus draws our minds and our hearts to consider eternity because tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Just this past week, one of my, one of my dear pastoral friends uh, officiated or led a funeral for a 27-year-old uh, believer in Christ, husband and father of two, including a seven-week-old. Seven week, seven week old. And maybe you know this story. It's a local story. That is tragic. That is tragic. We are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised tomorrow. If your past week was anything like mine, my mind was primarily on what was immediately in front of me. What was on the to-do list for the day? How am I going to get it done? And all the things. I didn't choose I won't say I, I did not have time. I will say I chose not to have set aside time to consider eternity. You can probably relate. So it is good for us loved ones to pause this morning, to open our Bibles, to be able to be alongside brothers and sisters in the very brief life that we are a part of, to open our Bibles and to consider eternity. Consider the words of Jesus to be challenged in how we're going to live this week, this month, this year, however long the Lord has us here, how we are going to live setting our sights on the realities of heaven. Jesus is telling a story here in 
chapter 16. Some say it's a parable, and yet others uh, say it may not be because it doesn't share some of the typical characteristics of a parable. For instance, it doesn't mention parable. Uh, it, doesn't, it also doesn't give, or it gives specific names such as Lazarus, and typically in parables you don't get that. And yet the story follows a line of parables in Luke 15 and 16. So no matter how we see it, Jesus is teaching. He's giving us a story to illustrate, a story to motivate us for godly living, a story to help our eyes to be lifted up. In this story, he's going to compare the earthly lives of a, uh, earthly lives of a rich man who goes unnamed and a poor man named Lazarus. A rich man who trusted in himself and his riches and a poor man whose faith was in the Lord. And then he's going to compare their eternal lives. He compares their earthly lives, then their eternal lives. And what we see is this great reversal occurs between their earthly and eternal experience. So verses 19 through 21 in the CSB translation. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. The earthly lives of these two men could not be any different. The rich man had a daily, moment by moment, a lifetime of ease and comfort. His wealth was externally evident through his, clothes, through his clothing, his lifestyle, and he had more than enough food, feasting lavishly, Every day is how Luke writes it. So the best food on the best dishes, ornate, over-the-top, multi-course meals. He wasn't ordering water at the restaurant to save a couple bucks. And all this lavishness took place behind a gated entrance. In an earthly way, this rich man was not lacking in any way. And right outside this rich man's gate laid a man named Lazarus. The rich man would have walked by him every day, and yet in his self-absorbed view, he neglected, he ignored, he was indifferent to the suffering and the state of Lazarus. The rich man was like that priest and the Levites, the two of them who walked on the other side of the road away from the one in need in the Good Samaritan story. So you can imagine him taking that, that same route of avoidance. And Lazarus, he was laying before the gate of this rich man's home in hopes of receiving food. More than likely, he was crippled. He'd been placed there at the gate in the hopes of receiving acts of mercy and compassion and love. Lazarus, his, his name means God helps. And yet this rich man was unwilling to help. Lazarus has an ex and is experiencing a lifetime of suffering and pain, and he's in such a state that he can't seem to move much, which is leading to sores, which then he can't even fend off the dogs who are coming to lick those sores. These are not comfort dogs coming his way. These are unclean dogs licking his sores that he is unable to fend them off, unable to move, so he develops more sores, and he is longing to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. So what does that mean? In that day, the hands of those eating at the table often used hunks of bread to wipe their hands and their plates clean. So they've eaten their food. They've licked their fingers. I will not demonstrate that for you right now. But they've licked their fingers. They're, 
as they've enjoyed this multi-course meal, they've slopped up the gravy and the, the drippings on that plate with that hunk of bread. They've wiped their hands and then they've chucked that on the ground. All the remnants, all the grease, and it gets put on the ground. It's that that Lazarus is longing for. And yet we can assume that even that type of food didn't make its way outside that gate. Rabbis at the time would have said that having to depend on others for food or having a body full of sores was basically the equivalent of having no life. The world would say that the rich man had a full life of satisfaction and at the same time they're saying that this Lazarus has no life at all. There is a chasm that exists between these two men, and yet some, some say day after day, 50 or 60 feet separate these two between the opulent dinner table in the mansion and the beggar spot outside the gate. Verse 22, one day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So both men die. The amount of money that the rich man has does not change that reality. As Ben Franklin said, in a moment of great positivity and hope, nothing is certain except for death and taxes. Death is the great equalizer. Since sin entered the world in Genesis 3, with it came death. Jesus said very plainly earlier in chapter 16, verse 9, that worldly wealth fails. If we are looking to provide for us uh, looking to wealth to provide for us comfort or salvation or rest in eternity, it will fail. The small g God of money is just that. It's a man-made God. It is not all-knowing, all-present, all-wise in this world. It's not an eternal God. It is an extremely temporary, earthly, small g God. And we see in verse 22 here that, that death is not the end. Don't believe this lie that this life is it. Pastor Rick Warren compares this life to being practiced for what we do in eternity. So for the Christ follower, we are seeking to worship the, the Lord our God here in this life because that's what we'll do in eternity. We are seeking to enjoy His goodness and His graciousness, His glory here in this life, still living in a fallen world, still dealing with the remains of sin because in eternity we will enjoy His goodness and His glory and His grace with unhindered fellowship, not marked by, by sin, not marked by stain. Praise God for that. In the opposite way, when we consider this idea of practice, if we have made a practice in this life of rejecting and disregarding the Lord, then it's safe to say that unless we repent and believe in the time that we've been given, if we die in that posture of rejection, that will be our posture in eternity. Both men die. And Jesus tells us that the poor man was carried away by the angels and brought to Abraham's side. In short, here's what we see. Lazarus, which, mean God, which means God helps, while it would have appeared because of his earthly life that the Lord had forsaken him, the Lord had not forsaken him. The Lord was faithful to the promise that he gives to give eternal life to those whose faith was in him. While Lazarus lived alone in this life, the Lord was present. He lived alone horizontally, but he was never alone vertically. And so he died alone horizontally, but he did not die alone. The Lord was present at all times, even in his death. And the picture of being brought to Abraham's side is a place of blessing and fellowship. 
Father Abraham, the father of the Jews, the one who's from family that his family line, Jesus would be born of. Jesus, the one who would bless all the nations. Father Abraham was welcoming Lazarus in. While in this life, people steered clear of him, walked on the other side of the street, pretended to ignore him. He hasn't had physical touch for who knows how long. Imagine that. No embrace, no hugging, no arm around shoulder, no physical touch. And Abraham, in this great reversal, pulls him close to his chest, embraces him. He has been rejected in this life, and now he is received, brought near. No one honored Lazarus in an earthly way in his passing, but he was honored in heaven. The rich man had an honorable burial and yet no angelic escort, no welcome into the father's, into Father Abraham's embrace. Now what has not occurred here is Lazarus is being saved because he's poor and the rich man is being rejected because he's rich. Salvation is through faith alone, not through external works. So we don't gain salvation by giving it all away. We don't gain salvation by earning a bunch of money. In the same way, we don't earn salvation by, by giving it all away. Those are works to perform that would lead to salvation when we are saved through faith alone. What has occurred here is that the rich man has trusted in himself and his riches for all his life. He's disregarded the Lord, lived for himself instead. He set his sights on the realities of earth, not on heaven. Lazarus, while suffering in this life, has sought to have his faith in the Lord, not in himself. And now both men have died, verses 23 and 24. And being in torment in Hades, he, the rich man, looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. The rich man had wrongly assumed that this, that his earthly life would simply continue into eternity. But while he was rich, he was at the same time spiritually bankrupt. Before, it was Lazarus looking up from his crippled position outside the gate to the rich man as he would walk by in those fine threads. But now it is the rich man looking up. And when you look up, it's a picture of dependence. You are in need of those who are above you. You are in need of their compassion and their mercy and their, their love. And he sees Abraham and Lazarus and he says, have mercy on me. Notice the rich man's focus. It's still himself. It's still himself. And he wants Lazarus to be his servant still. Hey, hey, send Lazarus to go get a cool, refreshing drink for me, for I'm in agony. Lazarus was begging for crumbs now. Now this rich man is begging for drips of water. The comparison of their earthly lives and now the comparison of their eternal lives could not be more different. Now the rich man is alone. He's in a place of torments and agony, suffering and judgment. All those common graces are gone. A cool breeze, a puffy cloud on a hot day, a cool drink. Loved ones, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who came in the flesh to dwell among us, who lived the sinless life, who died in our place to save us, 
those who have put their faith in Him. Jesus, the one with all authority, who knows you, who loves you. During His earthly ministry, He taught about a real heaven and a real hell. These weren't mythical uh, illustrations. This wasn't figurative speech. Two potential eternal destinies. No third option, no purgatory. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He taught about eternity because His mission was to seek and save those who were lost. That's you and me. That's our family, our friends, our neighbors, the nations. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Father doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance, including you, loved ones. For this rich man, there is a desperation in his words. He knows where he is. He is recalling all those times that he heard about the one true Lord and the, and the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet all those times where he was unwilling to forsake trusting in himself, unwilling to forsake earthly things to, to set his mind on heavenly things. He's not confused here. He's fully aware and he wants to change his address. He wants to change his status. He longs for relief and peace and comfort and rest. And he calls upon Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham. And so he appeals to him. Hey, hey remember my family heritage, Father Abraham. Remember the line I came from. He's assuming that because of his family tree alone, he'll be welcomed in. He'll be embraced. But salvation is through faith, not through a family line. And the rich man whose wealth is all gone sees Lazarus. He didn't see him in his earthly life, but he certainly sees him now. His eyes are open to the realities of eternity, and he's desperate because now a chasm exists, an unbridgeable, eternal chasm between heaven and hell. The rich man can't change his, his eternal state with works. So don't believe this false teaching that when you die, if you reject Jesus in this life, that you can somehow work your way back into his grace or work your way back up, up this mythical eternal ladder. We are not saved by works in this life. We will not be saved by works in heaven. Verse 25 and 26, Abraham replies to the rich man's request. Son, Abraham said, Remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed. Fixed. It's set between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. An unbridgeable, eternal chasm exists between heaven and hell. Do you see how a great reversal has taken place between their earthly life and their eternal one? The rich man was living his best life on earth. All benefits were his, and now he's the beggar. He was never denied anything in his earthly life, and yet here he's being denied, and his second request coming later of Abraham will be denied as well. He lived an earthly life of rest and comfort, and now his eternal life is that of suffering and separation. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not 
mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The rich man is reaping what he has sown in his earthly life. Let's see, Lazarus has also experienced a great reversal. He was lacking in every single way on earth, and now he lacks nothing. He was suffering in every single way, and now he is suffering no more. Sores have been healed. Jesus said in Luke 13, 30, Note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. This is the kind of reversal that has taken place in this story. Lazarus, who was last in this life, is now first. And the rich man, who was first in an earthly life, is now last. And an unbridgeable chasm now exists between the two of them. Verses 27 through 31. The rich man continues, Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now the rich man's attention is away from his, himself and on to his family. He's aware that his eternal state is unchanging. He hasn't asked to go back from the dead because he, he knows his freedom is no more. And he's deeply aware of how he rejected the Lord in his life and he doesn't want the same thing to happen to his brothers. Brothers who he knows believe and lived how he believed and lived. His brothers were around the things of faith, just like he was. They probably went to the synagogue. They probably heard the call to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they knew the stories of how God had delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery and brought them over on dry land through the Red Sea and, and fed them with manna from heaven. And, and what Abraham tells the rich man is, your brothers, just like you, didn't listen or hear the true words of the Old Testament they had heard the truth. They knew of the Lord and yet still said, we'll trust in us. We'll trust in our riches. They were around the things of faith, but just being around the things of the Lord, it doesn't save. Just knowing facts or stories doesn't equate to relationship. Knowing about Him and knowing the Lord are two radically different realities. And the rich man is thinking, if someone were to come back from the dead They'd listen, then they'd believe. If someone came back from the dead and said, all, all these prophets, they're all true, what they've told you, and eternity is true, and, and then my brothers will repent. Verse 31 again, but Abraham told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Abraham gives this sobering reality that, that a sign even as great as someone coming back from the dead, will not cause them to turn from their unbelief. Because the root issue is not that they need more proof. The root issue is, is unbelief. And that's the root issue for some of you as well. Some of you watching online, some of you here. It's unbelief. It's not one more fact that's going to push you into faith. It's you repenting from and trusting that the God who created you and loves you draws you, wants you in a relationship that his sacrifice is sufficient. It's enough to forgive you and set you free. It's turning from unbelief 
to belief. In Jesus' story here in, 30, in, in verse 31, he's alluding to and foreshadowing his own resurrection, that he will rise from the dead on the third day, that he will be horrifically murdered on a Friday and come back to life on a, on a Sunday and not be a ghost, but a full resurrected body, eating, drinking, fellowshipping with his disciples, seen by hundreds of witnesses, and some will still not believe. We see that in the Gospels. Some will not be persuaded that he is worthy of our complete trust and devotion. He beat death. He walked out of the grave. He rolled back the stone. And yet some will say, I think I'd trust in myself. I think I'm better. I think I'm more powerful. I think I'm more able. May such a response not be said of us. May rather we be people who trust in a risen Jesus who is still reigning and ruling and enabling people to walk out of the tomb of their sin and their background and walk into freedom. He's still doing that work. A couple things I want us to see in this story and how this story motivates us for daily living to set our sights on the realities of heaven. And one is money and one is the subject of mission. Jesus is giving a call here, like he has throughout the the chapter of uh, 16, a call toward love of neighbor and others that is demonstrated and lived out through merciful, compassionate generosity. We are to reject this posture of the rich man who ignored or was indifferent to Lazarus' suffering in this life. We are to ignore that route of avoidance that the priest or the Levite took around the one who was in need of care. We must choose to avoid or reject bystander apathy, which says, I see a need, but someone else will do something about that. Someone else will do that. James 2, 15 through 17 speaks of this. It says, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Our vertical love of the Lord should overflow to a horizontal love for others. Our inward faith in Christ should produce outward works, including acts of generosity and compassion, mercy and love. The lack of generous living from the rich man revealed a heart that was still about himself. Money itself is not evil. It is the love of money that is sinful in what the rich man fell into, a love of money rather than a love for the Lord. Jesus is calling the rich to examine how they will use wealth for his kingdom and glory. And when we hear the word rich, each of us, in our minds, thinks of someone else. When I say, well, consider the rich, we all go to someone just a little bit further up the spectrum of economic scale. Well, they drive this. Well, they live there. Well, they did that. He or she does this for a lifestyle. And Have you seen their lifestyle? And we immediately, when we hear the word rich, exclude ourselves. Because we go, well, they're rich. Globally speaking, friends, we are rich. We are rich. The vast majority of us are. 
And Jesus is calling his disciples, you and me, who have money and possessions and stuff, to live with generosity and love in this life. To reject living for our own self-indulgence at the expense of others, including love and compassion for the poor. There's also a warning here to avoid letting earthly riches pull you away from setting your sights on eternal realities. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And by craving it, some have wandered away. And I think the more sobering one is pierced themselves with many griefs, including eternal grief. So we're encouraged as it relates to money. We're also encouraged as it relates to mission. This mission that we're on to go and make disciples, we must be people who urgently invite others in. This is what Jesus said in verse 16 of the same chapter in Luke. We don't want others to experience the eternal separation and suffering that this man was experiencing. Like the Father, we want all to come to repentance. And what we see here as it relates to mission is that the Word and the Spirit that is given to us is sufficient. It's enough. See, sometimes we assume, like the, the rich man, that people will finally respond if the spectacular occurs. Loved ones, the spectacular has occurred. He walked out of a tomb. The spectacular has already occurred. It's the cornerstone of the New Testament church. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. His living and active word is enough for us to live on mission. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who would believe. For those of you in Christ, consider your own testimonies. How many of you were led to Jesus through, simply, through someone simply loving you enough to share with you the gospel? It wasn't the spectacular. It was simply someone simply saying, here's who Jesus is, and here's what he's done for you, and here's about his love for you, and here's what it means to repent and believe the good news. And more than likely, there were multiple people over different times sharing with you the gospel, in humble, loving, gracious manners, oftentimes relational manners. And in that moment, you turn from unbelief. You believed. Does the Lord use spectacular signs to draw people and save people? Of course He does. He is able. We sang that. But what we see Jesus telling us here is that the Word is enough his spirit is enough. Simply living our lives, loving others, showing of his love to others, telling, using our words, here's who Jesus is, here's the gospel, here's creation, here's fall, here's the rescue that he has done, here's how he's making all things new, sharing with others the gospel. We share that, and he does the miraculous. He saves souls. We plant, we water, which is about as humble as it gets. And God causes the growth. If the worship team could come back up. As we move toward worship and singing, I, I want to pray for all of you men here today in light of this, this passage. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that you are a perfect heavenly Father. No matter what our earthly dads were like 
whether glorious or grievous or somewhere in between, I pray that you would enable us to be able to relate to you in a new way, to be able to see you for who you truly are and not to see you in light of our earthly father's experience. I thank you that as a heavenly father, you are full of compassion and mercy and grace, not treating us as our sins deserve. Thank you for graciously and lovingly sacrificing your son for us. Thank you that in Christ a great reversal has occurred. Jesus, you were rich and you became poor for us. You were unstained by sin and yet you bore our sin upon that cross. By your wounds we have been healed and as men we desire to live devoted to you now. We want to set our sights on the realities of heaven and live accordingly. Empower us, Lord, to be men of compassion, tenderness, humility, strength, and generosity. Empower us to reflect you in our daily life Empower us to turn from unbelief and toward belief, from pride toward humility, from hearts that are prone toward self and instead hearts that seek to be devoted to you alone. Empower us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Encourage the discouraged today, Lord. Give strength to those who feel weak. May your power and faithfulness abound as we depend upon you as men. Young and old, we confess that we need you. So may our lives, however long you have us here, may our lives not be about us, but about you alone. We pray this in your name. Amen.